Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, powered by Encore Research Group. Go to EncoreDocs.com. This is MedEvidence, truth behind the data. In this episode, Dr. Michael Corrin and Dr. Mitch Rothstein are kicking the nicotine habit. It's a brain thing. Dr. Michael Korn is a practicing cardiologist and chief executive officer at Encore Research Group, which conducts clinical trials across Florida. He has been the principal investigator of over 2,000 trials and has been published in the most prestigious medical journals. Dr. Korn received his medical degree cum laude at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Mitch Rothstein has practiced clinical pulmonary and sleep medicine for over 30 years in Jacksonville. For the last six years, he has transitioned into clinical research as medical director of the Phase 1 unit at Jacksonville Center for Clinical Research. Always be sure to subscribe to MedEvidence for weekly notifications. And for more information on local trials, go to EncoreDocs.com. That's E-N-C-O-R-E-D-O-C-S dot com. Or call 904-730-0166. For more interesting and educational audios, videos, and papers on the truth behind the data, try out medevidence.info. Lots of interesting topics and presentations are there. Also, always check out the links in the show notes. All right, gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Awesome. Always a pleasure to see you. It's always a pleasure to see you too, sir. Well, today, let's let's kick this habit. It's, It's a bad one. Lots of people have this. Well, Dr. Rothstein's the true expert. Okay. Um, he'll kick me when I say something that's wrong, but, and then he'll teach everybody how to kick the habit. But uh, he, uh, Dr. Rothstein's a pulmonologist okay. and somebody that's been dealing with smoking illnesses for his whole career, and I'm just the clinical trials guy. But right. um, obviously, as a cardiologist, I, I touch the space as well, and we're always beating up on our patients to get them to break their bad habits and to conduct their lives as healthfully as possible. Right, and smoking definitely is at the top of... Uh the bad habits. Yeah, it's the number one most preventable thing that we can do for our patients to help them stop smoking. But I'll, I'll let Dr. Rossi tell you about some of his experiences and his general approach. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you know, throughout uh, practice, uh, we find that there are people that have different types of addictions, but clearly nicotine addiction is the most power- it's the most powerful drug in the world. It kills more people every year than every, every other drug combined. And to get people to stop smoking is really... Uh, difficult bridge to kind of cross. When we have uh, patients that are doing activities that they know are bad for them and that they know are going to make their conditions worse, yet there's still so much of a pull to still do that, it kind of uh, exposes how much addictive power nicotine really has. And it's not just the drug itself that causes the problem. You know, we have a whole society that's been raised in kind of a nicotine tobacco environment, uh, the times that we were growing up, mm-hmm. 50s, 60s, 70s, everything was surrounded or was, um, there were commercials about the seductive yeah, part of the culture. Yeah. Right. And no. that becomes part of it. It's like no. kind of triggering mechanisms. There's very people that just go someplace just to smoke a cigarette to get nicotine. It's you smoke a cigarette to taste a cigarette 
to play with the smoke, to hold the cigarette, to pack the cigarette. There's a lot of different activities that are all kind of molded together and people learn how to do that over the course of years and makes trying to quit smoking an, almost an impossibility because it's not just the nicotine that you have to stop, it's all those other behaviors that are going along with it. Yeah, you still see, um, I'm always surprised when I'm seeing people smoking nowadays because there is such awareness about it now. It's, it's, it's been stigmatized recently. Yeah. So the culture has completely changed. So, you know, 40, 50 years ago, it was the cool thing to do. And now it's being stigmatized. But still, 20% of all U.S. adults smoke. Yeah. And that number came down quite a bit, but it's kind of got stuck lately. But it was also replaced by Absolutely. other other. Like forms of yeah. nicotine, right? Which which may or may not be as bad. We can and we can discuss that. Yeah, and, yeah. and as you were saying, it, it has been stigmatized. But despite that, when you look at cultural differences and people being able to stop smoking in different countries in Europe, the, the ability for drugs that we have to help people to stop smoking and cognitive behavioral therapy to work has a much more positive uh, outcome than it does in the United States. One of the theories on that is that people in the United States are using so much more nicotine and the behavioral kind of components to it are so much more addictive here that people in the United States just fail at it more than people in Europe do because there's much more of that kind of whole combination of addictive behaviors that go along with it. Mm -hmm. I recently watched um, the movie, it was about the Gucci family that mm -hmm. just came out last year and smoking was like every part of that movie because it took place in Italy, it took place in the 80s and the 90s and even years before. But even at the beginning of that movie, it had a disclaimer that said, you know, smoking prevalent in this movie. I was like surprised they even had to put a disclaimer. And, on. and just to throw out uh, some other concepts, there are other parts of the world like Asia where the prevalence of smoking is even higher than in Europe or the U.S. So I, th I don't remember the exact numbers from Japan, but over 50% of Japanese men smoke still, mm -hmm. despite the stigma in the rest of the world. And the, the, other, the other interesting thing, uh, Dr. Rothstein was talking about how strong of a habit is. The, the addictive properties of nicotine are just tremendous. And the thing that most impressed me by that was stories that you hear about where prisoners of war are being released by, uh, the, uh, by another army that comes into the camp. So they're being liberated, basically, by the, the, the new powers that come in. And the first thing they ask for is a cigarette, not food. They're, they're starving to death, but they're smokers, and when they see a, a, a new military person comes in who probably has tobacco on them, they ask for that first. Mm. So I think that speaks to how powerful the addiction is. Yeah, so what makes it so addictive, Dr. Rothstein? Well, I think, I think there's a couple of different levels, and I know in my practice I was kind of surprised by a couple of patients that said a couple of things to me that kind of really put, put it in that perspective for me. One of my first patients who was an elderly gentleman and his late 80s and had been smoking for years and a terrible emphysema said to me you know doc if i knew i was going to live so long i never would have smoked so much <laughs> but he just couldn't stop mm -hmm. even in the outside of our waiting area he'd be smoking and then and then come in and there was never a patient that i met that said to me you know i wish i had smoked more so i mean those two things just don't happen but despite that you you can't kind of stop and and part of the um dependency and part of the addictive power of the of the of nicotine is that the, it's delivery so you know t nicotine tobacco has been around for thousands and thousands of years they found evidence uh just in the last five years of tobacco being used by hunter-gatherer tribes in utah mm. 12,000 years ago 
And so we know that when Columbus first came to the Americas, he was given the gift of tobacco and they didn't know what it was when they first got it, so they threw it out on their way home the first time. But the second time they came to South America, they understood what nicotine was for, what tobacco was for. And there were actually a couple of the uh, people on that crew of that trip to South America that went back to Portugal and Spain and were smoking. And their neighbors had never seen this before, and they saw smoke coming out of these people's mouths. And it was the time of the Inquisition, so they promptly got frightened of that and got thrown in prison. And they were there for like eight or nine years before they were finally let out. And then the pox of tobacco went through all of Europe. And certainly we brought some bad things uh, in terms of the Europeans to the Americas, but the Americas got us back with <laughs> uh, tobacco. But the delivery system of tobacco, the smoking tobacco, when you smoke a cigarette, the smoke goes from into your lung and immediately is absorbed into the blood vessel next to that air pocket in the lung, which brings it directly to the heart, which then shoots it directly to your brain. So that pulse of nicotine, it, you get immediate satisfaction from it. And it wears off then very quickly, mm -hmm. and then you have a repetitive behavior. Right. You do it over and over. Right. And then because of that, you start to associate that kind of repetitive behavior with other behaviors. Either you're doing it while you're driving, you're doing it after dinner, you know, you do it when you're having your coffee. There's always an association that goes on, and then it's so difficult to break not only that kind of drug dependency, but that behavior. Well, the holding of it, too, and, and having a drink and a cigarette for, for those folks as well. So what, though, makes it so harmful? Is it the chemicals that are in the cigarettes? Is it the tobacco by itself? Is it the combination? Well, I, I'll, say, I'll say this, that we know that nicotine is probably not harmful. Uh, you can probably chew as much nicotine gum as you want. You know, you can have it. If you could get nicotine in some other form, it's not going to hurt you. And it's the smoke that kills mm -hmm. people. You know, there's yeah, yeah, nicotine yeah. has some chemical similarities to caffeine. And we use caffeine, and that's not stigmatized. <laughs> and But it helps us function. So you can think about that as well, is that nicotine helps a lot of people function. It's this ongoing, continued antidepressant that people can use to raise dopamine levels in their brain. But burning tobacco is a very bad thing. And then inhaling tobacco, my understanding, and Dr. Rothstein will correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, historically you didn't always like try to breathe it deeply into your lungs. Sometimes you would get the nicotine through your mucous membranes. So even cigar smokers that have like a more noxious type mm. of smoke may not inhale it the same way that cigarette smokers do. And because of that, the delivery system is a little bit different through the mucous membranes compared to through your, your lungs and your alveoli in, in the lungs. So uh, that is a behavior that's sort of been learned and promoted by industry, of course, over, over the last few centuries. Mm -hmm. So what makes it so difficult to quit? So the problem with quitting is you have to uh, address not only the withdrawal aspects from the nicotine, but also all these behavioral aspects. And the relapse rate is high because a lot of people can, you know, there's another expression, it's easy to quit, I've done it a million right. times. Yeah. So that, you know, you can quit and you can be successful quitting. And then, you know, people generally have some positive association with the act of smoking. So they oh, let me just smoke one cigarette. I haven't smoked in a month and one cigarette's not going to hurt me because I smoked millions of cigarettes, so one more. And so you smoke that one cigarette, and then it kind of escalates from there. 
but people in general and in the pharmaceutical uh, industry uh, also tends to tend to address just the one aspect of smoking which is the chemical component of it and not the behavioral component of it which is probably the most powerful aspect of keeping people addicted and in some of the uh, studies that have come out and over the last 20 years we've learned tons about the um, uh, the receptors for nicotine and how they're kind of put together and we know that there's these different types of receptors where the nicotine molecule kind of attaches and some of them are associated with different types of behaviors different types of either enhancing visual behaviors or acoustic behaviors or in terms of sensitizing your body to nicotine itself so there's it's a complex kind of issue a lot of positive feedback from smoking for people that smoke. Right. And to answer questions about why it's harmful, I can weigh in as a cardiologist, is when you burn tobacco, you bring the temperature of tobacco up to about 900 degrees. Mm. And that releases 3,000 noxious chemicals that get into your system. A lot of those chemicals are pro-inflammatory. So they cause inflammation throughout your body, including in your blood vessels. And a lot of them will actually cause your blood pressure uh, blood vessels to contract, and certainly the the unique property of blood vessels to to dilate to allow more blood flow is impaired by the chemicals in cigarette smoke. So that is one of the mechanisms, and we know that if you stop smoking even for a day, there's some benefits, and there are cardiovascular benefits that accrue literally from day one to a year out. Mm -hmm. And if you can get to a year out, then from a cardiovascular standpoint, you're no different than a non-smoker. Oh. Not necessarily from a lung and cancer standpoint, but from a, a cardiovascular standpoint, you are. So um, purely from a blood vessel and a heart standpoint, it's so important to quit, even if you do it for a few months and keep on trying. So that uh, you, know, the, uh, you mentioned the old Mark Twain line, which I love, is it's easy to stop smoking. I've done it a thousand times. <laughs> uh, even if you do it a thousand times, that's better than just continuing. Mm -hmm. Can the lungs repair? Uh, no. So the lungs don't repair. Mm -hmm. so what you want to do is there is uh, lung damage occurs in kind of two different ways. One is the inflammatory way, similar to the way blood vessels get inflamed. The lungs can get inflamed and swollen, and that part can repair. But the structural damage that's done to the lungs in terms of destroying the alveoli, the little parts of the lung that participate in bringing oxygen in and carbon dioxide out, those uh, don't get any better. And once the damage, the inflammatory damage gets to be too much, that becomes self kind of perpetuating and that doesn't get repaired either. So the less you smoke, the better off you are. Mm -hmm. I used to say that if you were survived your smoking out about 15 years, then your risk of dying from a lung-related smoking illness would be about the same as someone who hadn't smoked. But you have to have that 15 years out. Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of Med Evidence, the truth behind the data.